We'll hear argument first this morning in Case 06-1265, Klein and Company Futures versus the Board of Trade of the City of New York. Mr. Days. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, a clearing futures committee commodity merchant, an FCM, such as Petitioner, has standing to sue contract markets and clearing organizations of contract markets under Section 25B1 of the Act. Uh, for their bad faith failure to enforce rules that are required by the Act and by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The Court of Appeals' contrary ruling should be reversed for three reasons. Because it's contrary to the text of 25B1, uh, uh, it ignores the essential rule of clearing FCMs, such as petitioner, recognized by the Commodity Exchange Act, as well as long-standing industry rules and practices an assessment with which the expert federal agency, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, concurs. And it's in cross-purposes with the goal that Congress sought to achieve in enacting an express private right of action under 25B1 against contract markets, namely to ensure the existence of fair and orderly markets through a system of effective self-regulation. The plain language of the Commodity Exchange Act confers statutory standing on petitioner to bring this private right of action against respondents. 25B1 makes no reference to buyer or seller, but instead confers standing on any person who engaged, uh, a person who engaged in any transaction on or subject to the rules of a contract market or licensed board of trade. Mr. Days, can I interrupt you there and ask if you yes, would, Ginsburg. if you would define the transactions, the particular transactions on which you rely to come within that provision, and what rules of the exchange or the clearinghouse do you say Justice, have been violated? Justice Ginsburg, uh, we view this as several subsidiary transactions that ultimately end in the consummation of a contract. But with respect to the rules that we have in mind, uh, first of all, uh, Rule 6A talks about uh, that can be found in the blue brief at uh, 1A, that such contract is executed or consummated by a through a member of such contract market. Uh, this is a clearing FCM that does this. And 6A, along with the knife rule, that is the contract markets rule, 121F, and 306I2 uh, essentially indicate the following arrangement. Uh, no cons- contra- contract can be dealt with or entered into on a contract market without a guarantee from the clearing FCM. Uh, the FCM becomes the buyer and seller with respect to that particular contract. It assumes that contract. It then, after assuming that contract, has to clear it uh, immediately, lead with, within one hour. So that's, that, those are the rules under the statute and with respect to the contract market. With respect to the clearing organization, Rule 401A, which is found at the red brief at 6A, indicates that at the clearing point, the clearing FCM is the party that deals with the clearing organization. And at that point, there's no communication, no contact, no contract between the, the investor uh, and the clearing organization, the clearing organization becomes the buyer and seller. In other words, the contract is between 
a clearing FCM on one side of the contract and a clearing FCM on the other side of the contract, the clearing organization becomes the buyer and seller. But before that happens, it's clear that the clearing organization views the clearing FCM as the party to the contract. Uh, it is not the investor. It is not any other party. The important thing also about this process is that the clearing FCM is always financially liable from the very beginning of this transaction, this, this process, to the very end. That is, from the executing of the contract to the consummation of the contract. For the Court of Appeals to talk about uh, buyer or seller and treat a clearing FCM as a mere creditor or agent really misses entirely the role that clearing FCMs play in this process. I Mr. think you, you've, you've talked about the transactions, but I also ask you, what were the rules that the defendants violated, the rules either of the statute? Well, uh, it's, it is clear, as I indicated with respect to the rule of the contract market, that the clearing FCM is required uh, to clear that particular uh, order or uh, uh, contract. And therefore, at that point, uh, the clearing requires some information about the settlement price. Here, the allegation is that there was fraud at the point where the settlement price was set. That then created a problem with the clearinghouse. And at the clearing process, there was also a continuing violation because at both points, the contract market and the clearing organization should have been applying their rules uh, effectively and, and carefully, and we suggest here that that was done in bad faith. In other I, words, I the cause of action, we understand, requires that there be showing of bad faith. But is, 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 I, I don't want to reduce the, the issue down to something too simplistic, but is, the, is there a rule that says don't lie, don't commit fraud? Yes. In, in, in fact, the, in order to be a contract a market designated by, by the CFTC and by the statute, there has to be uh, a commitment to avoiding price manipulation and cornering the market or various other things of that kind. So that's in the statute, and it's also subject to the rules of the CFTC. That's a basic understanding. That's a given. Indeed, with respect to the whole question of settlement prices and margins, uh, the understanding of those who participate in a commodity futures market is that they will establish their margins with the expectation that those rules will be applied fairly and firmly and in good faith. Okay. Am I, am I right that we really do not have to — Excuse me? Am, am I correct that we really do not have to determine that issue this morning? What, all, all, we have, issue all we have to determine is, is whether it is possible uh, uh, for, for the petitioner here to be within the class of, uh, of those with — Absolutely. This yeah. is a standing case. Uh, Mr. Days, let's suppose that the uh, — Exchange has a standard sort of uh, non-discrimination provision with respect to employment practices, and uh, it, an employee uh, asserts that she was discriminated against in the promotion review. Uh, would she be covered by this provision? No, Your Honor. I think that Congress had in mind a limitation of the standing uh, 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 position that is standing right to those who participate in the process when it talks about a person who engaged in, in a transaction on or subject to 
the rule well, of the contract. I suppose the transaction it. would be her annual employment review that she alleges violated the exchange rule, saying the exchange would not discriminate on the basis of sex. I don't, I don't believe that that would be a transaction on or subject to the rules of a contract market. She would not or he would not be a person uh, whose transaction, that is, the employment contract, would be carried out on or subject to the rules of a contract. Well, suppose to narrow that hypothetical a little bit, there's a rule that you can't be an employee uh, of a clearinghouse or the exchange if you have a conviction for fraud and they don't, they're negligent, careless about enforcing that rule, and that fraud causes the loss. Uh, under either your theory or the government's theory, would there be liability? And is there a difference between those two theories? Well, the, the uh, statute itself uh, talks about the responsibilities of the contract market or the clearing organization, and it describes transactions. And transactions are described broadly, but not in a way that would encompass the examples that, that you gave, uh, Justice Kennedy. So, so transaction has some substantive limitation that is derived from where? Well, it's derived from the statute. If one looks at uh, Rule uh, 2I in the, in the statute, uh, that describes transactions in a variety of ways. It's not in any of the uh, appendices, but uh, it can be located, uh, I believe, on uh, page 5 of the, the yellow brief where we talk about that. And, indeed, it's an interpretation uh, that was uh, uh, given by the Second Circuit in the Ken Roberts case, which we also cite uh, at that page in the yellow brief. But, but in, in my hypothetical, there is a transaction and their actual damage. I'm reading from, uh, from, 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 from uh, B.C. There's been a transaction and, and the liabilities for damages sustained by a person who engaged in the transaction or subject to the rules of the market. Well, uh, Justice Kennedy, I want to focus on transaction. There's nothing that I've been able to find and nothing that uh, the CFTC has indicated in this respect that would cover the hypothetical that you and uh, Chief Justice Roberts have mentioned. Theoretically, yes, but I don't think that, uh, uh, in fact, not theoretically less, uh, uh, yes, I would say that transaction does not incorporate those ancillary rules of an operation of uh, a contract market. I mean, well, why aren't these ancillary rules? I, when I think of a, a futures exchange market and the transaction, I think of the buyers and the sellers, the, you know, the longs and the shorts. And this strikes me as just kind of the, the paperwork in the back office. Why, why is that? Why should we assume that's covered by the term transaction? Well, it is a, a broad definition, but it focuses on the process of the execution and consummation of the contract, not uh, matters that are unrelated. I would view, uh, as was indicated in the uh, American Agricultural Movement case, these people as non-participants in the operation of the core function of uh, a contract market. But these people, you mean the ones in our hypotheticals? That's correct. Let's give a slightly difficult, finding it difficult to follow the exact language on page 4A of the appendix of B1C. You, that's probably the key provision. Right? And, and that's in the blue brief. And catch me when I read it wrong, if I do. As I, as I see it, it says, and here it says a, a clearing organization. That's what we're interested in here, the clearing organization. Right. Now, a clearing organization that doesn't enforce a bylaw properly or a rule or reg properly which is what you're saying happened. 
Yes. The clearing organization got all mixed up, did it all work? Correct. Now, they're liable for actual damages to a person who engaged in a transaction in a contract market. That's what it says. And the contract market is the futures exchange, not yes. the clearing organization. Yes. And they're liable to that person for the actual losses that resulted from his transaction in the uh, futures exchange. It says such transactions. Yes. So what your claim is, and that were caused by the failure of the clearinghouse to follow its rules. Yes. So you're saying just read that. We have a case where the clearing organization didn't follow its rules. The, uh, our, my client engaged in a transaction over the futures exchange. Yes. And it was caused harm because the clearing organization didn't follow its rules. So you say that's what it says. Yes. And that's what happened. Correct. I understand that correctly? Yes. I, I don't know, Justice Breyer, whether you're, you're heading toward the concern that's expressed by the respondents, namely that 25B1 does not contain in that second part of the, of the statute a reference to a clearing organization. A clearing organization I know, but then the market. response I'm going to ask them is, so what? Well, I think that is so what, uh, as a proper response, I'm glad you said it rather than I, uh, that uh, I know you're we, we, have, we, have, we have, we think, standing with respect to a transaction that occurred on the contract market, even if the respondent's uh, argument is persuasive that it didn't happen on the, on the uh, uh, clearing organization or subject to the rules of the clearing organization. It would be an argument for this case because that absence has been cured. Wasn't that in the 2000 amendment that that they changed the, the That's list to registered entity, and which does include clearinghouse. Yes. Well, well it, the, the yes. concern on the other side, I take it, is that it's not just limited to transactions on the exchange, but transactions subject to the rules of a contract market. And I understood in response to uh, the hypothetical that Justice Kennedy posed that you indicated that transaction has some substantive limit to it. And it's, if that's the case, which seems to me an awfully large concession, um, then we have to figure out what the limit is. And it seems to me that it could just as easily be limited to the transaction between buyers and sellers of futures contracts as between all these subsidiary, ancillary, collateral, whatever transactions that simply implement that broader transaction. Well, well Mr. Chief Justice, uh, uh, there are limitations with respect to uh, 25B1. As I indicated, uh, non-participants in the market are not explicitly covered by this. But also, one has to understand that there has to be a showing of bad faith, uh, and there are no uh, punitive damages. There are uh, actual damages, and therefore, this limits the extent to which this provision could be used by by someone who was not uh, within the category that I described. Correct me if I'm wrong, though you're going to be more favorable to this than I expect your opponent. I mean, there's nothing really linguistically or otherwise wrong if you had a statute that said people in the badminton court have to play carefully, and if they hurt somebody on the merry-go-round, they're liable. And so people in the contract market have to play carefully, and if they had hurt somebody over in the uh, futures exchange, they're liable. But it says those people in the futures exchange are people who engage in a transaction on the futures exchange. Yes. And so they said, well, by odd fluke of fate, your clients didn't. 
It was the, uh, rather, their client who actually went into the futures exchange, bought the commodity. Mm -hmm. And your point, I take it, is, well, that's true, but my client did something. He guaranteed that commodity uh, transaction in accordance with the rules of the future exchange. And that's what makes him a player on the future exchange. Yes, I got you're that right. The, the clearing FCM is yeah. what you're he, 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 sorry, he guaranteed uh, through the clearinghouse the f payment of the contract made on the future exchange. That's correct. Which he didn't make, but he guaranteed it. He, well, he made that, it in that's a sense. Not, you that's want not to say correct, uh, uh, Justice Breyer. The clearing. He didn't walk FCM. onto the floor and make it. It was his client who walked onto the floor and said whatever. Is that right? Uh, well, it's hard to know who walks on what floor. I think what's clear about this industry is that it's the, the clearing FCM who's always at the center of this, the essential participant in this entire process. The, the FCMs may not know who the customer is. They certainly don't know the, who the customer is on the other side. The clearinghouse doesn't know who the customer is or the investor is. So the investor actually plays a very uh, small role other than putting up his or her money at the beginning of the process. No, I, I mean, the, the market is about investors. It's about buyers and sellers. Now, you're, uh, the clearinghouse and these FCMs may or may not be covered by the language of the statute, but it's an awful big stretch to say they're central to the market. What's central to the market are the investors. That's why they have these. They wouldn't have this market uh, for, for, for your clients, uh, I mean, for the clearinghouse or anything else. The market's there for the buyers and the sellers. That's well, the we, central transaction. We, we, we don't argue. Uh, that investors are barred from bringing suits under 25B1. Uh, they would be uh, persons who engaged in transactions on or subject to the rules of the contract market. Didn't ju uh, Judge Friendly refer to the FCM as a central player or principal? In yes, that, that's certainly been the, the case in Leist, uh, where Judge Friendly uh, wrote the opinion. And uh, uh, what, also, what, is, what is the transaction? What is the the single transaction that you think uh, brings your client within this language? Well, I, I mentioned what is the transaction? The, the, the guarantee. The, the, the one the contract market uh, requires that the clearing FCM clear a contract with one hour, assume the contract. So the assuming of the contract and the clearing required by the rules of the contract market is a violation of the CDA. I'm not talking about what the rule is that was violated. It says who engaged in any transaction on or subject to the rules of such contract market. What is, in brief, the transaction you're relying upon? Well, Your Honor, as I indicated, the transaction is the process of assuming this contract and then going toward the clearing clearing uh, organization to clear it, and at the clearing organization, setting the settlement price, which really dictates what happens on the clearing organization. So it's the setting of the settlement price, which is the key point. The transaction does not require two parties? Well, there are two parties party here. There's a, there's a tra we can view this as one uh, sole transaction. It's one transaction with a number of subsidiary uh, activities along the process between execution and consummation, or one can view uh, various transactions that ultimately end up with the, the uh, consummation of the contract. Why isn't it I don't think it makes any difference one way or the another. The guarantee that the, the relationship between 
the clearing organization and the clearinghouse, the clearing organization has to give a guarantee and has to put up margin. That's correct. So there is a transaction between the clearinghouse and the clearing organization. Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, well, they're I, the I same thing. You mean the clearing FCM and yes. the and the organization? Thank you, Mr. Days. We'll give you a minute for rebuttal, uh, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, for purposes of this case, the Court may assume that the word transaction in Section 25B1 is limited to the purchase and sale of futures and options contracts. The Court may also assume that in order to engage in such a transaction, a person must be a necessary and direct participant in the transaction. Even under where, those — Where do all those assumptions come from? Well, I, I would have thought the limitation of transaction beyond — the plain language would be a significant concession in this case. I mean, when I say assume, I'm saying that the Court need not decide at this point how far, if at all, beyond the, the core transactions that occur on contract markets the statute reaches. That is, with respect to the hypothetical case of an exchange or a clearinghouse that has an anti-discrimination rule and is alleged to have, viola- have violated that rule. Yes, on the one hand, you could say that in literal terms that is a transaction subject to the rules of the exchange. On the other hand, I think there is significant force to respondents' contention that that seems very far afield from what was the core of Congress's concern. And with respect to the anti-discrimination hypothetical, there would also be the argument that there's a different federal So statute. we have to figure out what was the core of Congress's concern and limit transaction in that way? I, I think the Court can at least start from the assumption that Congress referred to transactions on or subject to the rules of the contract market. And none of the things that have been posited in the hypotheticals, the anti-discrimination, would be transactions on a contract market. But they'd be subject to the they'd, rules. They'd be subject to the rules. But our point here is that the United States and the CFTC have, have not had occasion to decide how far, if at all, beyond the core transactions on the contract market the statute extends. But our point is, even if we look at the core of what Congress was driving at, the buying and selling of futures and options contracts, the clearing FCM is a proper plaintiff because it assumes direct contractual liability to the clearinghouse. Even before the clearing process is completed, it was defined as the buyer or seller of the contracts in the NYFE rules, and its participation is essential. Now, now we have a somewhat different conception of the relevant transaction uh, than does the petitioner. In our view, when Eisler executed his trades on the floor of the exchange, he set in motion a process that would quickly and inevitably culminate in the clearing of the trades by the clearing organization. And at the end of the day, there would be an array of contractual relationships. Klein would have a contractual obligation to the clearinghouse. The clearing FCM on the other side of the trade would have its own obligation to the clearinghouse. Klein would have an agreement with its customer, First West, that would entail rights and obligations running between them, and there would be a similar set of uh, rights and obligations on the other side of the trade. What about the argument that if we accept your view of it, allowing the FCM to sue, then there could be multiple liability? I I think that's incorrect. I think the customer would also be uh, a 
an appropriate plaintiff. That is, the customer would have his own rights and obligations arising out of the con contract with the, the clearing FCM. But the fact that they might both be conceivable plaintiffs wouldn't mean that they could both recover in the same case. Remember that the statute limits recovery to actual losses. So if the customer here, Eisler and First West, had paid the required additional margin to Klein and Klein had discharged its obligation to the clearinghouse, Klein would still be a person who had engaged in a transaction, but Klein wouldn't be able to recover because he would have suffered no actual losses. So it's the person who bears the actual loss at the end of the day who would be the appropriate plaintiff. And the fact that in some cases that might be the customer and in other cases it might be the clearing FCM doesn't mean that there would be duplicative recovery in a single well, when case. You began by saying we could begin, we could assume certain things. Was it in, included in the things that we could assume? Uh, was it the proposition that the transaction is limited to a purchase or sale? A purchase or sale, although we would, we would extend, I mean, we would interpret the clearing process as part of the purchase or sale. And the reason we would do that is that clearing occurs inevitably by operation of law, as it were. That is, once Eisler executes his trades, Klein had no discretion as to whether to discharge its obligation to clear the trades. Klein had previously entered into a commitment to guarantee the trades that Eisler made, and therefore what Klein's obligations to the clearinghouse followed directly and inevitably from the initial trade on the floor of the exchange. In, well, is that different from saying that under the exchange rule, the, the FCM is actually the party that enters into the trade? I, I think it is a different thing, and, and there are two different bases on which the Court could rule in our favor. That is, Rule 306I2 of the rules of the exchange that were in effect at the time of, of these trades specified that, and uh, that's reproduced, I guess, at page 14. A of the blue brief, and it said the, the second sentence of Rule 306I2 says, Every such contract when made by a trading member shall be made on behalf of a clearing member who shall be the buyer or seller of said contract on the terms set forth therein. So one way to rule for Klein in this case is simply to say, even if we focus entirely on the moment at which the trade was executed, under the rules of the exchange, Klein was deemed to be the buyer or seller. But we're also making the different argument, and, and in a sense, we think the more important practical argument that regardless of where the contract ran during the brief period before the clearing process was consummated, uh, the salient factor is that at the conclusion of the clearing process, the clearinghouse would look directly and only to Klein for satisfaction of any obligations uh, arising out of unsuccessful trades. In a sense, the clearinghouse could be analogized to a department store in which only the clearing members have charge accounts. And in order for anyone else to make a purchase, he has to make prearrangements with a charge account holder, holder to have permission to charge things to his accounts. And that's essentially what was done here. In order for Eisler to execute trades on the floor of the exchange, he had to have the prior commitment from Klein that Eisler would be allowed to charge trades to Klein's account. And in that situation, we think it's entirely natural to say that Klein engaged in the transaction, even though Eisler was making the decisions as to, to exactly what trades to execute. Mr. Stewart. Is that why the Second Circuit was wrong in saying it's just like a securities broker? Yes, I think the, the Second Circuit's error was not really that it had 
a misconception of how narrow or broad the private right of action is. The, the Second Circuit's error was that it misunderstood the role that a clearing FCM plays in the process. The clearing FCM doesn't simply facilitate the formation of contracts between other people. The clearinghouse assumes direct contractual — I mean, I'm sorry, the clearing FCM assumes direct contractual liability to the clearinghouse. And that, that's fundamental to the operation of the contract markets. That is, the point of the clearinghouse is to give investors assurance that if their trades are successful, they'll get paid. And in order for the clearinghouse to pay the winners, it has to have confidence that it will be able to collect from the losers. And the way that it has that confidence is by identifying a small number of people, clearing FCMs, who have demonstrated financial wherewithal and integrity, and saying, we're going to look only to you to satisfy these obligations. We're not going to put ourselves in the business of going after large, large numbers of individual investors to ensure that losing trades will be paid. Mr. Stewart, may I go back to the question of multiple recoveries? And by that term, as I understand it, it, the term does not mean duplicative recoveries. And I don't understand, and, and, and this is what I want you to explain, why there couldn't be a recovery in a case analogous to this, both by the FCM and by the ultimate customer. Let's assume that the settlement price is, in fact, rigged. The FCM cannot meet the, uh, the resulting margin call uh, and, uh, and falls, uh, and hence a situation like this. And this happens quickly enough so that the ultimate transaction is never consummated, uh, so that uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the contracting party on the FCM side of the trade doesn't get the benefit of what would have been a favorable contract. Couldn't you have recovery in that case, both by the customer and the FCM? I, I'm, I'm not sure if I, if I fully understand the hypothetical. To, to, it may be that I don't understand well, how it works. To, to answer a variant of it, I think there could be cases in which both the customer and the clearing FCM recovered something. That is, say there is a loss of a million dollars that's attributable to malfeasance by the exchange, and the customer comes up with half of that money, $500,000, and the clearing FCM uses that to discharge half of its own uh, obligation to the clearinghouse. Now, in that case, both the customer and the clearing FCM might have a cause of action for $500,000. So there would be — there could be multiple recoveries in the sense that you're describing. But there, in my hypo, the, the FCM is claiming uh, a, a, a damages because uh, his business falls. Uh, so the damages are not limited simply to those flowing from this transaction itself. The customer — uh, is claiming damages for failure to consummate a, a contract that would have been favorable to him. If you assume that consequential damages arising out of the loss of the business right, could be part of actual losses, then there would be no barrier to each each party, the clearing FCM and the customer, recovering what it actually lost. Our point is that there is no danger that because the clearing FCM is — there's no danger that because the clearing FCM is liable for a million dollars to the clearinghouse and the customer is liable to the clearing FCM each for a million dollars, that they'll both get a million dollars. It's only the person who bears the actual loss. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Pincus. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Um, I'd like to return to the language of the statute because I, I think it explains why uh, the 
comments that Mr. Stewart uh, started with are, in fact, compelled by the language of the statute. Uh, 25A talks about a person who engages in any transaction on or subject to the rules of a contract market. And I'm focusing on the on or subject to the rules. If, as petitioners uh, claimed in their opening brief, uh, any trans- the fact that a trans- any transaction was governed by any rule, as in the Court's discrimination hypotheticals, was enough, then the on would be superfluous. There wouldn't be a need for on, because surely a transaction on a contract market has to be governed by the rules of the contract market. So I think that shows why on or subject to the rules of is a term of art. It has a special meaning here. And the only kinds of transactions that are either on or subject to the rules But under that reading, they should have used the word and rather than or. No, Your Honor. Transaction, or which is, which is subject to. Well, Justice Kennedy, I think what what Congress was, was explaining there is it wasn't saying any transaction subject to the rules of a contract market, because that would be all of the Court's hypotheticals about discrimination and and everything else, and the word on wouldn't be there. And so by using on, which by definition on has to be subsumed in the rules, because if a transaction is on a contract market, surely it is in some way governed by a rule. So if Congress meant to cover every transaction that is in any way governed by a rule, it wouldn't have had to include on. So the reason, the fact that on is there means, as we discuss in our brief, that this is a special, this transaction on or subject to the rules singles out a very special category of transactions. And that... I'm sorry, I'm not following. I I think Justice Kennedy's question still applies. Your argument assumes that the or is, is an and. I mean, you don't need to have a transaction on at all. It can be simply one subject to the rules. Yes, but the fact that Congress put on in there means that it was trying to capture something other. The fact that Congress put on in there and then followed it with or means you don't have to worry what on means if you're subject to the rules of the contract market. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, but, but I think the reason that on is there is that Congress was signaling that it wasn't that the second part of the clause or subject to the rules didn't literally mean or subject to the, any rule, because if it literally meant that, there would have been no reason to. So this is on. like a Houston generous argument. You're saying we should interpret subject to the rules in the same light that we inter- interpret transaction? No, this is an argument that on or subject to the rules, that a transaction on or subject to the rules is, is a special kind of transaction. It's a term of art in the statute. And it's a yes. term of art that refers to, to trades. But even if it's a term of art, did you contend that Klein was not engaged in a transaction subject to the rules? Yes, we do. Your Honor, we, our, our view is that the transaction that is referred to there are the transactions that include either at the trading pit or a, a small category of off-pit trades that are permitted by Section C of the Commodities Exchange well, Act. What is the scope of the term transaction in your view? What does it cover? It covers the trade, that, the, the, the contract that occurs at the pit the moment that the, at, at, during open outcry when contract one — Contract between either the buyer and the seller and the clearinghouse — and not the clearinghouse, the, the — uh, uh, the, um, FCM or whatever you call it. Well, FCMs are, may or may not be involved. In, in this case, Klein wasn't involved because Eisler was a floor, uh, had floor privileges, and he actually ex- — he, he was the person who was at the pit engaging in these transactions. So our, our view is that the, a transaction, to start with that, either occurs at the pit 
when an offer is made in open outcry and it's accepted. At that moment, that transaction And who are the complete. parties to the transaction? The parties to that transaction are the buyer and the seller, the customers, the people and that the import. And are not parties to the transaction, even though they're liable for the, either the purchase price or the sale price? Yes. They are not parties to a transaction. They are not parties to the transaction. Which them to millions of dollars of liability. At that moment, Your Honor, they may not even be identified. At the moment that that transaction occurs. But, but they are subject to liability if the transaction doesn't, isn't consummated. Under the rules of the, of the clearing organization, yes. But the, tra- the, tra- the, buy, the buy and the sell contract will, will be worth nothing if it isn't cleared. Well, it, it, what the clearing process does after, the tra- after that contract is formed is to eliminate, to pr- provide a way to strip out the credit risk that ordinarily would no, adhere. No, but you want, us, you want us to say that the clearing is no part of the transaction, but the clearing is necessary to make the transaction go forward. Otherwise, it's a, the, the contract is just a nullity. No, Your Honor, we don't believe that the contract is a nullity. And, in fact, if, for example, a contract was made at at the pit, and for some reason the, the clearing member who was to clear the transaction went bankrupt that day and didn't exist, and therefore that transaction was not cleared, that transaction would still be enforceable as between the buyer and the seller. As well, they had to pick it up in an hour. Well, it, it has to be cleared in an hour to go Fine. through the clearing so process. So therefore, but it's not any transaction it wouldn't happen, your hypothetical, because if, if I understand it correctly, the buyer and the seller, who, by the way, are normally represented by clearinghouses like Klein or by brokers like Klein, but in this case, apparently they weren't. Uh, they, they make the transaction in the pit, and then the rules of the exchange say that the clearinghouse has to pick it up, the clearing member, within one hour, and at that point, that person, the uh, clearing member, the broker, I guess is Klein-type person, becomes legally responsible for seeing that the money is put up. Now, it doesn't require a big stretch, in fact, zero stretch, of the word transaction to think that word transaction covers that entire process from the moment. And by the way, the whole process is governed by the rules of the futures exchange. So there are rules in there. So why why do you, uh, what reason is there for taking that word transaction, cutting out about two-thirds of the important event, Ignoring the fact that it is covered by the rules future exchange and limiting it to the physical moment when somebody enters the pit in an unusual case and says, I buy for, and then another person says, I sell for. Well, let me first point out, Your Honor, it's not an unusual case. There, there frequently may be a case even where there, either where, even where both sides are represented uh, by floor brokers, where the floor broker who, who is who is representing the party in the trade is not the clearing member. That happens all the time, and that's why the rules say that the clearing member doesn't have to even be designated until one hour after the trade. So hard to say that the clearing member engages in that transaction on the floor when he when it may not be designated. The reason for the division is uh, that Congress set out a clear rule here. The transaction, it referred to, it it used the language that it used elsewhere, as we discuss in our brief, particularly in in defining the functions of floor trader and floor broker. Mr. Pincus, if your view were correct, it would have been so easy for Congress to say buyers and sellers or even trade, but it used a word, transaction, which you say has a special meaning in this context, but transaction appears all through the law. And usually, it's a term that has 
encompassing meaning, like in the federal rules, any transaction or occurrence. And you would say that Congress has given it here this very constrained meaning. We do say that, Your Honor, because uh, let me address first your question about why Congress couldn't use a buyer or seller. Here, Congress um, had to needed a construction that would link the 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 transaction that was being targeted with the rules of the of the contract market because that was going to be the test here it's all about whether or not a contract market or violated its rules and so it needed a construction that referred to the a transaction because those are the things that are governed by the rules of the contract market that that might be misapplied in the wor- in the way that a b and c talk about so it would have had to even if it had used the phrase you know purchased or sold a commodity for future delivery or an options on a contract for future delivery, it would still have to say on or subject to the rules of a contract market in order to link back to what it was doing, which was creating a cause of action for the violation of the contract market's own rules with respect to a transaction that was subject to those rules. I so, did just say sustained by a buyer or seller. Shall be liable for actual damages sustained by a buyer or seller. What would, why, why would it need to be any more complicated than that? Well, because it, it would have to talk about um, — Then everything else is the same instead of a person, just buyer and seller. Well, because then in, the, in, the, in several lines down, it, it has, talks about actual loss, and it would have to say buyers and sellers there as well. And I don't know why. Well, because it was referring back to, it would be referring back to to buyer or seller. But I I think the key here is, for Congress, given the structure of the Act, any transaction on or subject to the rules of contract market are these transactions. Those are the only transactions that, that, that meet that test. Those are the transactions, that very same phrase is used in defining the functions of the floor broker and the floor trader who execute the transactions on the floor. And so by using that, tr- that phrase, Congress was tying back to something that it had a clear definition of. Let me — Where uh, is the clear de- — there's no clear definition. There's no definition whatsoever anywhere of transaction. Well, there's no definition of transaction, Your Honor, but, but in the definitions of floor trader and floor broker, the, the phrase on or subject to the rules of a contract market appears again in defining what they do. And so those are the people who are at the pit either executing for their own account or for a customer's account the trades. And so by using the, that very phrase in defining what they do, which appears, by the way, on, in the discussion on pages 5 and 6. Are they brief. persons engaged in contracts subject to the rules? Are they persons engaged in, con- in transactions subject to the rules? No, Your Honor, we don't, we don't think they are because who, they're acting who, who, as well. Who are subject to the rules, in your view? It doesn't include the, the FCM, doesn't include the brokers, that doesn't include well, the trade. Well, certainly a floor trader is because that's someone who's trading for his own account. A floor broker who's merely representing a customer is just like someone who at a house closing, if you can't make the house closing, you may appoint someone to close the house. They're not the person who engages in the transaction. You do. Not neither are they the people who can end up personally liable. And, and, I mean, they don't have — they're not subject to margin calls. There's something very different about this set of relationships from the, from the uh, broker-seller relationship in buying and selling a house. 
Well, there those those people also have well the 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 floor broker is not subject to a margin call. He's subject to liability for other things that he may do wrong. But it, for, for his role as a floor broker, he's not subject to margin responsibility. You recognize that the, the, the Second Circuit was wrong when it said that, that this FCM is just like a securities broker. He's just making a deal for a commission. It seemed to me that that well, was not Well, Your Honor, for if that was all the Second Circuit said, I would agree with you that would be wrong. But the Second Circuit recognized that, that the Klein here had a risk, a credit risk, because it had backed up uh, the credit of its customer, Eisler. And that's why in the lessons learned report that the CFPC — But it's not just Klein. It's every FCM. That's the job of an FCM. That is the, jo- the job of the, the clearing member part of what an so FCM that's, does. So that's not, not comparable to just a broker who um, executes my order for shares and gets a commission for it. No, Your Honor, but as the Second Circuit went on to note, the fact that there is a credit risk here, that, that Klein is taking a risk based on the credit of its customer, Eisler, as the CFTC noted, there's nothing in the rules that require clearing members to only accept minimum margin, and it's the job of a clearing member to to look into both the creditworthiness of its customers and the risks of the various Mr. transactions Mr. that are open I, and demand I, I, more margin. One thing. I was under the impression from the briefs, and maybe I'm wrong, that you did not defend the reasoning of the Second Circuit. Am I right or wrong? Well, we don't. To, to the extent uh, petitioners claim that the Second Circuit based its reasoning on, on the uh, imputation into 25B of the limitations in 25A, we don't Agree with which that. was the principal basis for its decision. But there was a second basis to its decision, which talked about this, the fact that Klein didn't engage in trading, and we agree with that basis because that's, that's the, what we're arguing here. Well, on, on this subject, and uh, you have an, your client obviously has an institutional interest uh, in the case. Assuming you don't prevail, uh, is the government's theory much broader uh, and more undesirable, in your view, than that offered in, in Klein brief, I was going to, I didn't have opportunity to ask uh, Mr. Days if, if, if he ex- accepted the government's position. Well, it, it, it certainly would be better if the phrase transa- transaction on or subject to the rules of the contract market meant trade and we were only discussing how expansive how elastic the definition of trade was. We would still take the position that yeah. it's not elastic enough, obviously, to include clearing members. But we think that given the language that Congress used and the fact that that language is used to refer to that on or subject to formulation is repeatedly used to refer to trades, we think it's very clear that trades have to be what it is. Otherwise, when, it, when the statute talks about the fact that a floor broker engages in activities on or subject to the rules of a contract market, it could be talking about discrimination and all kinds of other activities. But even with respect to the narrower formulation urged uh, by the Solicitor General, we think uh, that it is not right for several reasons. First of all, the language of the statute, as I said. But there's a clarity problem. If once you move beyond that contract that is executed uh, and, and becomes complete on the PIP, how far do you go? There's clearing. Before the contract is executed on the pit, at the pit, there may be antecedent activities. 
For example, someone who doesn't have floor privileges has to go through an FCM. There may be an introducing broker that introduces that customer to the FCM. Are all of those activities, which are specified in the statute, just like the subsequent act clearing activity is specified in the statute, are they all also shoehorned into the definition of trade? Mr. And that's Pinkus, where Justice Kennedy was asking you about the government's position. One of the positions, one aspect of the government's position is that uh, that you would not dispute that a person who engaged in a transaction subject to the rules of a clearinghouse would be a proper plaintiff under the current law. Well, certainly the FCM is a person subject to the rules of a clearinghouse. Yes, although obviously the, the parties haven't briefed the, the current law. We, we would take the position that the current law doesn't change the equation. And that's what I thought your position was. So that's not an accurate no. characterization. No. Our position is, again, the on or subject to language, uh, we believe, is quite clearly refers to trades and that uh, Congress's technical correct substitution of registered entities doesn't, doesn't change that. But you're saying that because a trade is on or subject to, the only thing that can be on or subject to is a trade. And, and it seems to me that, that that's the point at, at, at which we have difficulty following your argument. Why, what is your reason, textual or otherwise, for saying that because a trade is on a subject to, no other subtransaction uh, uh, can be on or subject to? Because, because trades are the only thing that fit those two criterias. Only trades are, are, can, can be under the statute either on the contract market, either because they are, because they are executed at the pit, or so-called off-market trades, as referred to in, in Section 6C, very small categories of off-market transactions that are the equivalent of trades but can occur off-market. But, Mr. Payne, even if you limit to the word trades, it's not necessarily followed that the only parties to the trade, the original buyer and the original seller, there are two intermediates who participate in the, in the execution of the trade. I agree, Your Honor, and that's, that's the second part of our argument. Once, once we uh, reach the point where it's trade, then the question is, what does trade mean? Does and, it include this transaction? Well, we, we believe that it, there, there, are, there are, at the pit, Again, the, the, transact, the on transaction, the transaction that occurs on is the open outcry transaction where, in this case, Eisler made an offer and some other floor trader accepted it, and that was complete there. Klein had no role in that transaction, and clearing members do not have a role in that transaction. They come no, in later. Why, why do you say Klein had no role in it? It was an indispensable party to the transaction. It was a subsequent party. It had a subsequent role. Before it role. was completed, he, he participated in. He was he, he functioned as functioned as a guarantor. Well, it was not. It, it need not be clear at the moment that the trade is executed at the pit who the clearing member will be. Often it, was clear it won't by be. the time it was over. No. It, well, it depends what you mean by over, Your Honor. What happens in the process, if I can just lay it out for one minute, is the transaction occurs at the pit. It's recorded. The clearing member in between A and D, but before it can be consummated, B and C have to play a role. Well, that activity is over. We'll try to use neutral words. That activity at the pit is over. The next, that data, who bought, who sold, and maybe the clearing members for those two parties are identified. Maybe they're not. They might not be identified for an hour, according to the rules. 
So something happened at the pit. It's then entered into the computers. And at some subsequent point, yes, the clearing members will be identified and the trade will be cleared. Our point is that is subsequent activity. That is activity. That's the clearing process. It's important. But there is an enforceable contract before the clearing event occurs. Nothing in the rules say that the contract is unenforceable. It's true, but is there any reason that uh, the word transaction uh, would have served the purpose by being so limited? It does, Your Honor. What what reason would Congress have wanted to do that? Well, because in the the environment that Congress was operating, just following this Court's decision in Curran, the focus entirely was on protecting investors. That's not a reason. I want to know what reason, what harm will be done if, in fact, we take the word transaction and say the word transaction, while it's capable of the interpretation you give, is also capable of interpretation and includes all the near contemporaneous events, including the financing and guarantees, like a mortgage and selling a house. Because that also is linguistically possible. What harm will be done? The harm that second we, is chosen and not the first. The harm, two, two categories of harm. First, a lack of clarity. We don't know, as I said, how far back are we going? The statute requires for, for customers that are not trade, uh, not exchange members, they have to go to an introducing broker. They have to go then to a But FCM. the only one that has this relationship that's different from an ordinary broker, the only one is the FCM. But that's true, Your Honor. But if the Court were to adopt a rule that says we're going to read transaction broadly, and so anyone who has anything to do with any aspect of the trade, either before it or afterward, is covered, all of these antecedent people, just are, in terms of the statutory language, are people who, who not have people a role. who are at risk. I mean, if, if it's a broker who's, who's just executing a trade for a commission, is not at risk. But this FCM is at risk in this transaction, series of transactions. But it's hard to see in the language where Congress would would have drawn the line. I think the problem is a lack of clarity. We certainly won't know if the Court says we're going to move beyond this core transaction and encompass some ancillary activities. I got that when you said there were two. What's the second? Well, let me just add to 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 the first that there are subsequent activities. There also are arrangements set up with banks that automatically supply margin that facilitate transactions, and so the question will be, aren't those banks who play an important liquidity role, aren't they also part of the transaction? The second reason is the reason uh, involved in well, the I mean, government's — the answer would be that, that those transactions are not subject to the rules of the exchange. Well, they so aren't. They, they, they don't care what kind of uh, uh, arrangement the FCM might have with its bank. That's up to the FCM. There's no exchange. But it has to have an arrangement, and that, that fact is a rule of the exchange. Isn't so it, it depends what rule. Again, we're, we're embarking on a world where we're not going to know what the, the answer is. The agency that's supposed to be the supervisor of this uh, area, the CFTC, is taking the position that the government presented to us Today, apparently, it doesn't have the concern that you have just expressed about reaching people who are not themselves subject to the regulation of the exchange of the clearinghouse. Well, I think it does have that concern, Justice Ginsburg, which is why Mr. Stewart said that the Court should sort of take this case on certain assumptions, because as he recognized, the theory that even the government put forward in its I thought what he was telling us was that even if you assume that, 
client Klein has stand, even if you assume that. Well, it's certainly their position that, that, that Klein has standing, but in terms of the consequences of a ruling by the court that the statute goes beyond the core uh, activity, I think the government's uh, suggestion sort of shows that even the government is not sure once you embark on that exercise where the boundary line is. And you, I would you, point out the government is not asking for deference in this case, nor could it. I, th- I think you still owe Justice Breyer his second reason. I do, Your Honor. And the second reason is involved in the government's response to Justice Souter's question about uh, multiple recoveries. If all of these various people can assert claims, then there is certainly a risk and a significant risk that all of these various people will assert different kinds of monetary harm that they will claim is actual loss. In this case, the principal actual loss, as we discuss in the second argument in our brief, that's claimed is the loss from the destruction, allegedly caused to the destruction of Klein's business. If there was a bad enough event on an exchange, all of the people in the, in the row, from the introducing broker down to the end, down to the bank, could claim that because there was a foul-up in the electronic reporting system, and trades were misreported for a week. And when they were unwound, the consequences of that were lots of bankruptcies in the futures industry, that all of those uh, liabilities get pegged to the contract market. As, as the FIA — Aren't there lots of situations in which a very serious wrong harms a whole bunch of people and they all recover? There are, Justice Stevens, but as the, uh, this is a p- particular kind of industry. As the, F- as the Futures Industry Association notes in its brief, every day more than $5 trillion worth of contracts are traded on futures exchanges. There's a huge amount of concentrated risk in contract markets. If the contract markets are going to be made liable to a vast array of people, there is a very serious risk that yes, that but in this very case, you would agree if Klein had been trading on its own account, if it were a scalper, it would have been able to recover for, the, for its losses. To itself, right? Yes, if it had been trading if for it itself. It has some trades for itself and some for other customers. It only recovers the half of those. Does that make sense? It does because Klein is a market insider. It has ways to protect itself other than suing the contract market. It can certainly sue its customer. It has ways of protecting itself, as the CFTC report said, in terms of demanding more margin, in terms of watching the risk in its customer's portfolio, in, in terms of, of hedging its own risk. It's an insider and it can do that. What Congress was concerned with here, and the reason our construction of the statute makes sense, is that it protects the outsiders, the, the investors who are at the core of the concern here, without imposing a broad array of liability on the contract markets who are in the middle of a huge, huge amount of financial risk, which really puts them in a position of shouldering risk that's uh, intolerable. Are there instances where multiple parties who are injured sue under state law, or is this generally deemed preemptive, or it just doesn't happen? Or? Well, there are other options. I mean, one of the things that Klein says here is this is its only option. It can go to the FTC. In this case, for example, the FTC order against Eisler assessed a civil penalty, but then said the order could be — that obligation could be fulfilled by paying the injured parties. Klein, to the extent Klein has an injury, the FTC — the uh, CFTC in a similar case could do the same thing. There are state law claims. There are uh, — Mr. Mr. Pincus, would you uh, satisfy me on on one point? I I understand your argument about what transaction means, but even if I accept that argument, explain to me again why or subject to the rules of doesn't add anything. Well, it does — it it adds, in our construction, 
The transactions that are on are the transactions that occur on the floor. The transactions that are subject to the rules are the XPIT transactions. Once you say or subject to the rules involves more than XPIT trades, off-exchange trades, then you're into the world of the Court's hypotheticals uh, to Mr. Day's of anti-discrimination rules. So it has to have a limited meaning, and by coupling it with on, we think the Congress made clear it was referring to trades. Why wouldn't it have been enough to just say uh, transactions on? Because then their meaning. Why? why Because then you wouldn't capture a category. Because then Congress would have left out a category of trades. Congress meant to capture investors who trade. There are two categories of of transactions that meet that test: those that occur on the exchange, on the physically, on the pit. And those that are within the industry called off-exchange or off-pit transactions, defined in Section 6C of the Act, of the, of the statute. And so by the second phrase is meant to capture those, those trades that may involve investors but don't occur at the pit. But I take it your, your ultimate, we'll say, policy reason for confining it to that is the, is the policy against multiple re- recovery. Yes, the policy reason is the, po- is the risk of multiple recoveries in an area where there is a huge amount of risk. The contract market is at the center of things, of, of these $5 trillion a day. And so Congress wrote very carefully. And Congress's focus was, in the wake of Curran, and given what it said, was investors. Because the, the, the implied cause of action that the Court recognized in Curran was all about investors. Yeah, the but current argument is basically that's probably all Congress was thinking about. Yeah. But as I understand your position, it's something more. Congress was also thinking, probably, about multiple recovery, and it didn't want that, and we will impute that intent to Congress because multiple recovery would be a very bad thing for the industry. That's basically yes, your argument. That, that is our argument. Okay. Um, Let me say a word about the rules and whether the rules are relevant here. Uh, it seems to us that Congress used a phrase in the statute and that it's, it's the, that, that cannot be changed by a rule that, that says, if an exchange adopted a rule that, that said some transaction was on or subject to the rules of it, that wouldn't be enough to put it into the statutory language. The test is what Congress meant. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pincus. Uh, Mr. Days, you have a minute. Your Honor, uh, Mr. Pincus has identified what he views as some temporal gap between the entering into a contract and the involvement of the uh, clearing FCM. That simply is not the case. Uh, Klein had a prior commitment to clear Eisler's trade. So even at the time that Eisler was trading, that had to be done with the understanding that Klein was going to back him up. Uh, if one looks at uh, the, the gray brief, uh, at page 21, there are references to the rule of ni- rules of knife uh, 116 and 118 that, that make this very clear. Uh, the story is, as we've indicated, that throughout this process, the clearing FCM is financially li- liable and therefore is on the hook. Uh, when Congress enacted the statute, it was concerned with protecting the public and maintaining credibility. Uh, we think that this cause of action, this express cause of action for allowing FCMs to sue, uh, is most reliant to the objectives of Congress, the faithful execution by an FCM that deals directly with these entities, the clearinghouse and the Commodity 
uh, contract market. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Days. The case is submitted.